Welcome to RUF. My name is Austin. I'm a campus minister here. Um, and if it's your first time here, if it's your 50th time here, I just want to remind us that RUF seeks to be a gracious community on campus for anybody and everybody, regardless of your spiritual background or current spiritual condition, to just come and explore the truth claims of Scripture, to come and hear about Jesus. And so we're glad you're here. And this whole semester, we've been walking through the book of Acts, and we actually find ourselves um, at another kind of two weeks in a row, a pretty disturbing kind of dark story. If y'all were here last week, and if you weren't, uh, you can listen to the podcast, RUF Old Miss. But last week we looked at uh, Acts chapter 5, and we tried to dig into the story about Ananias and Sapphira. And we saw how God's miracle of judgment actually came to them, uh, struck them down. And it was God's judgment that was saying, look, I am not going to allow hypocrisy I'm not going to allow sin to flourish in my people. God was taking responsibility for the well-being of his church. But this week, we have another story about death. Uh, We have a story about Stephen's death, and they are actually very different stories. Where Ananias and Sapphira were supposed to, like, kind of provoke us to self-reflection, maybe repentance, um, maybe a little sobering. uh, Just, like, trying to figure out where, like, how am I? Uh, a hypocrite. Stephen's death is is a diff- it's a hero's death. It's supposed to inspire us to courage, conviction, and hope. Uh, and if y'all aren't familiar with this story, if this is the first time you've heard it, or maybe you don't know the significance of it, we're going to dive into that. But this is actually the first story of a Christian martyr that we ever have in the Bible. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And that word martyr actually comes from this story. It comes from Stephen. Martyr, the Greek word for martyr, simply meant witness. Before, you know, Stephen died, before Christians uh, were were persecuted uh, unto death, martyr just simply meant being a witness, identifying yourself with an event or some uh, special person. And it was Jesus who said in Acts chapter one, the first chapter of this book, that if you follow him, you will be his witness. You will identify yourself with me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And what we learn about Stephen is that being a witness Being a martyr, following Jesus, comes at great cost. And that really, if following Jesus isn't costing us, we perhaps need to reflect on if we're actually following Jesus. And so this story, um, we want to ask that question. What does it look like to follow Jesus and actually count the cost? What does it look like to have the courage to kind of push into the cost of what what it would look like? To follow him faithfully. And secondly, how do we get the courage to do that? What, what is it that allows us to be brave like Stephen, to be a hero of the faith like Stephen? So I want to look at that, this in three different points. First, the false witness, the faithful witness, and the judgment. I don't know why that number four is on there. It's a choose your own adventure fourth point. We'll see. Um, but anyway, the false witness. So in many ways, I, I want us to view this story through kind of the lens of a courtroom. Because really, this story is about the gospel being put on trial. Stephen enters the story really in chapter 6 of Acts, and he's just kind of identified as a leader of the church. And Stephen goes about his leadership of the church. He's preaching the gospel. He's sharing the good news. And as Stephen preached, these people wanted to put the kingdom of God on trial, these people that I'm calling the false witnesses. And we have to ask, what was so offensive about this supposed gospel, like this good news? What, what was so offensive to these people that they, they went to this length 
to kind of extricate the gospel from their communities. They, they killed Stephen. And I think we see in verse 11 and uh, 13 and 14 what was really bothering them so much. It says that they basically went and tattletailed to the leadership of uh, the temple. And they said, Stephen is preaching against Moses and he's preaching against God. He's preaching against the temple. He's preaching against the law. He's tearing down all of what we hold so dear, these religious customs and routines. In other words, he is attacking, he is trying to overturn everything that we find identity and security in. And he's threatening that with this message. And we don't have time to go through all of Acts chapter 7. That's why we uh, kind of skipped down to Acts 51, or 751 when we were reading the scripture. Because it's kind of this long uh, message that Stephen gives. He gives this amazing sermon. I'll summarize it. But essentially Stephen stands before the, the Jewish court. And he refutes this message by saying, look, I am not being loose on scripture. I'm not trying to undermine scripture. All of scripture was about how God was seeking to relate to his people with these laws, these customs, these routines. It was all supposed to point that God wanted to relate to his people according to his kindness and simply by grace. And now that Jesus has come, he was the fulfillment of all of these things that we were doing. He was the answer to all of these customs that we had that were saying, look, we need to have grace in order to have a relationship with God. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that grace. But Stephen also says in his sermon that there was another pattern in the Old Testament. It wasn't just that God kept kind of giving uh, the people the law, kept giving the people customs, kept giving the people feasts and stuff to celebrate and to point to his grace. It was also that God's people always rejected the message that was sent to them, that God's people were always repulsed, or at least some of them were repulsed by this idea that it was grace that was going to determine how God and them related, which is why Stephen mentions that they always killed the prophets. They always killed the prophets and they ended up killing Jesus, crucified Jesus. It was because they were offended by this message of grace. Essentially, what Stephen is saying here is that these people, these false witnesses, are not rejecting the gospel because they actually believe that it's not true. It's that they don't want it to be true because they don't want grace to be true. Grace is offensive to them. They, it, it evokes fear in them. I was thinking about fear, uh, and for some reason, dreams came up in my mind. And I uh, looked up, what are, the, what are the top reoccurring dreams that people have? And these are the top seven that I found out that research says that that most people have. Uh, Falling is number one, being chased, being unprepared for a test, flying, uh, your teeth falling out, uh, being naked in public, or missing a deadline. Uh, So if you have those often, I hope you feel encouraged, I guess. I don't know. I don't, I'm not here to interpret dreams or anything like that, but I do think it's like widely acknowledged that dreams have a lot to do with what our subconscious mind, our hearts are kind of dwelling on that during the day we don't really want to confront. And it's interesting to me that all of these dreams that kind of recur, that are, are popping up, that kind of captivate our subconscious, all of them have to do with fear. All of them have to do with fear, not just a, a fear of like being attacked. The fear is all in having a loss of control. When you're falling, you have no control. When you're being chased, you're vulnerable to somebody else's control. When you are subject, or when you uh, 
are in public naked, I guess, or you miss a deadline, like you are subject to scrutiny, to the, the critiques of others. What grips the human heart is fear. This fear that deep down, I can't protect myself, that I am weak, that I am vulnerable, that there is something wrong with me, that I'm liable to judgment. This fear is what kind of drives us to pursue. It it really drives all of our daily decisions. It's why we hang out with the people that we hang out with. It's why we are pursuing the certain major. It's why we don't hang out with certain people because they kind of bring up what's vulnerable, vulnerable about us. Uh, We avoid social interactions that make us feel not cool. We don't want to be seen relating to those people. We kind of lean in on social interactions that make us feel affirmed. We pursue careers that kind of boost our egos and our self-confidence. We pursue careers that will give us financial security, and we kind of don't pursue those careers that might make us vulnerable to a lack of financial security. We even do this with religion. A lot of us feel very morally vulnerable. You have kind of a weight, a fear that like your guilt is going to finally catch up with you. And so a lot of us use religion to kind of protect ourselves from this fear that we will be judged by like trying to be as moral as possible, trying to be as righteous as possible. That's where Stephen's accusers found them. Or maybe you're like done with religion. Uh, A lot of people find their security in being anti-religious because they get to they get to be proud of themselves and say, like, at least I'm not like those people who believe that like crazy stuff. And what I would argue that this passage is kind of inviting us to understand is that the message of grace is always going, is always going to evoke fear in us because it's always going to come after what we are trying to use to protect ourselves from our vulnerability. It's always going to come after what we, the identities that we're building up to make ourselves feel like we're in control. Because To have God's grace, to understand it, to embrace it, the first thing you need to do to embrace God's grace is to admit that you need it. You have to admit that there are parts about yourself that are unsavory, that you can't control your sin. You can't control the record of your guilt. You can't control this broken world of suffering and sadness. You can't protect yourself. However much you're trying to boost up your ego, however much you're trying to build this reputation, you are still vulnerable. You are helpless. And for the prideful, grace is offensive to them because what grace says is you have to admit that this game you're playing isn't working. These things you're running to, they aren't working. You are vulnerable. To the one who's trusting in their own ability to to create a secure identity for themselves, grace is always going to evoke fear because it's going to overturn the thing that they're trusting the most in. Um... We see this in the false witnesses. You usually can tell what you're trusting the most in by what you're the most defensive of. And it's as soon as he comes after their morality, as soon as he comes after their customs, as soon as he comes after what they think is making them better, is is what's making them safe, that's where they get fearful. There's no way he could do this. But Stephen also offers us another way to live, a, a, a way to live that's like not gripped by fear. And so second point, the faithful witness. So there's always something that I think we need to be aware of when we encounter like characters of the Bible. Because I think it's like easy for us, and I understand, it's easy for us to romanticize these figures like Stephen and kind of cast them as these amazing heroes that we could never be. You know, uh, they're just, they're kind of set up as these like 
Uh, they're in the hall of faith or whatever that means. But I think in order to understand truly who Stephen is, what was so particularly like amazing about his courage, I think we need to understand what type of hero he actually is, like what makes him courageous. Uh, I'm way out of my league talking superheroes, I must admit. I'm not like a Marvel guy or, um, I don't know, sorry to disappoint. But the way I want us to think about Steven is there's a difference between Superman and Spider-Man. I think we kind of know that. Superman was somebody whose strength, whose courage, he was born into that. Like his powers, he possessed. They were self-generated. And so in order for him to become a hero, all he had to do, like his key was looking within himself and like harnessing all the power that he already had access to. But Spider-Man, Peter Parker, like he was not born a hero. Peter Parker was incredibly average. There was nothing special about him. The way he became a hero was that something out, a power greater than him, outside of him, like fell upon him. This mysterious spider transferred to him this amazing power. And if I'm getting Spider-Man wrong, I, I'm seeing some different, uh, yeah, oh well. Um, you'll get it. The moral application, though, uh, like if you think that the moral application of Superman is what you need in order to be a spiritual hero is that you need to look down within your, like you need to look within yourself and just find something in yourself to be better. But the application that I think Stephen shows us is he's more like Spider-Man. You cannot become a hero by looking inside. You need someone, something more powerful than you to work with. And in the story, we see that that's what happens with Stephen. All of Stephen's heroism, Luke, um, as he writes, he's just... He's constantly drawing attention to what Stephen was actually possessed with. Verse 8, he was full of grace and power. Who actually has access to grace and power? God. Verse 10, he was full of wisdom and the Spirit. Wisdom is found in God. The Spirit is God. Verse 15, Stephen's face was glowing like the face of an angel. This is a reference back to uh, when Moses was on Mount Sinai with God. He came down and his face was glowing because he was in the presence of the glory of God. The source of Stephen's courage, how he was brave enough to live a life that wasn't gripped by fear, was that he had been with the Lord, that the Lord had transferred to him his power. Who Stephen was was a lot less about who he was being for God. It was a lot more about who God was for him. And look, maybe you've caught on to this. Um, RUF, you are rarely going to come to RUF and get like a spiritual pump-up speech. And it's not because we think we're cool. It's not because we like being different. And, you know, we just don't do things that way. The reason we don't, the reason we don't think you need a spiritual pump-up speech is because we think you need something more. A spiritual pump-up speech might last for a few weeks. Uh, y'all had, you, a lot of you have experienced the camp high. It wears off. A spiritual pump-up speech that tells you to look inside yourself. You can be the person, you know, God's calling you to be. It just doesn't work. What the Bible says that we need, what this passage says that we need is not to look within, but we need to look out. Look at verse 55. After Stephen preaches the sermon, he shows a lot of courage, telling them the truth, calling them to repentance. And he knows what the reaction is going to be. They're grinding their teeth. They're angry. What keeps Stephen from shrinking in fear? It's where he's looking. 
It says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. And look, let's just be honest. I don't think God is going to call many, if any, of us to face kind of the the dire situation that Stephen finds himself in. And if you are so, you know, if the way you're preaching the gospel is so provocative that, you know, people are coming after you like this in America, at least you're probably just doing it to be provocative. But I think this story embarrasses me because Stephen's courage that he's showing here, there's something that Stephen sees about Jesus here that gives him courage in the face of this situation that I know I would shrink in fear that like I don't have even when I'm facing like very inconsequential things. I don't know if y'all feel that. Like I'm so gripped by fear that oftentimes I, I do these sort of mental gymnastics to somehow get out of the call that like, if I'm gonna be a witness of Jesus, that suffering is inevitable. Like I, I can explain my way out of that somehow because my fear. But look, the story and even Jesus' words himself that says, you will be hated for my name's sake. You, you need to take up your cross and follow me. The inevitability of being with Jesus, of following him and suffering and persecution, it's real. And Stephen allows us to see that. And so what do we need to see that Stephen saw? What do we need to understand that allowed Stephen to move into the, the scariest situation I can imagine that kind of challenges me and encourages me to move into these way less scary situations, way less uh, situations that need less courage with this sort of faith. Remember, it's, it's where you're looking. What Stephen understands is that he doesn't have to be afraid because even though Jesus' grace is going to like wreck his life, even though Jesus' grace is going to expose the things about himself and others around him that are going to like cause a lot of anger in himself and others, that it's only through that exposure that he gets to experience the depths of the grace of God, that he gets to see that God's grace actually goes that far. I really do think this challenges us with the idea that, like, do we really know the freedom that we have in Christ if we, do we really know the freedom that we have in Christ that you can actually invite him to have his way in your relationships, your romantic relationships, that, that he actually might have something to say, that he actually might have something to expose? What about our study habits? Do we feel the freedom in Christ? Do we have the courage to let Jesus say, look, like maybe we'll get a B or a C, but like, is cheating really, is cheating being rooted in all this fear that you want to have security by having this grade? Like, is that really bringing life? Or perhaps Jesus can bring you better life. Does the freedom that we have in Jesus grip us in a way where like we are fearless when encountering these things that we know that Jesus will bring tremendous suffering into our life, both the personal things and like the relational, the relational things around people that, that are around us. And I'll be honest, I seldom, I seldom know Jesus in a way. I seldom see Jesus in a way that frees me up from this fear. And so last point, uh, I just want us to see like, well, what, is, what does Stephen see about Jesus that allows him to have this freedom? Last point, judgment. Um, so 
we go back to the source of Stephen's courage. Stephen didn't, Stephen didn't face this fear uh, and this situation because he was amazing, because he was awesome. Stephen's courage was derived from where he was looking. I read verse 55 earlier. Uh, but one thing that you might not notice about verse 55 on the surface uh, is look at what Jesus is doing in verse 55. It says that he is at the right hand of the Father, standing up. He's standing. This is the only time in Scripture that when Jesus is pictured at the right hand of the Father, whether it's in kind of prophecy, whether it's in uh, visions, that Jesus is standing. Usually, when Jesus, you know, in his ascended state, is pictured at, at the right hand of the Father, he is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because Jesus sitting is a declaration that his work is done. That he has defeated sin, death, and the devil. That he's not anxious about the job that he's done. That he is sitting and he's relaxing. He's at rest. But why is he standing for Stephen? I think what he's trying to communicate to Stephen is that he, though he is being rejected by men, though he is having to face persecution, though his greatest fear, his greatest vulnerability is coming true right before his eyes, that Jesus is not indifferent, that Jesus is not distracted, that Jesus is standing as his advocate. That though those people might be trying to, to beat him down, that Jesus is ready to receive him in a higher court, a higher court than the court of public opinion. And he's ready to accept him. He's not ready to accept him because he's lovable, because he's awesome. He's ready to accept him because of his grace, because of where he's living. And so I think what we need to see about Stephen is that this is the type of love that 1 John 4 says is able to cast out fear. It's the love that says, yes, Jesus is standing by the Father. And that, that's scary news, actually, because that means he's in control. That means he's sovereign. That means he sees everything about me. And yet, that also means as he's communicating to Stephen, that he's ready to accept you, that he's not ready to judge you or throw you out or cast you down like all these other people around Stephen. He is ready to accept you. And he's ready to accept you with the smile of the Father. That's what encourages, that's what allows Stephen to feel the power to face his greatest fear. Because he knows that regardless of what he faces here on earth, that when he's received in the court of heaven, he has what is the true security that we all desire. It's the smile of the Father. Grace reveals that our aspirations, that are the things that we're finding security in, aren't actually able to do the thing we want them to do. Because what we want them to do is give us the smile of the Father. And only Jesus can provide that. And we become a hero of the faith, not by how strong we are, but by who our faith is in, Jesus. I'll end with a story. Um, this story's been passed around RUF kind of for years, but a former campus minister, Nathan Turkwe, tells a story about a time where he went to this place called Liberty Land. Any Memphis people in here know what Liberty Land is? Apparently it closed in 2005. It was a water park. Um, but anyway, his family and him were at the water park, and after a long day uh, at the water park, it, it was hot, and he wanted to kind of cool off. And there's like those mist machines that you can go to that kind of cool you off at the amusement amusement park and water park. I think there was two sides to, to Liberty, Liberty Land. Wow. Um, but anyway, as he got closer to these, these mist machines, he realized that there was like a group of teenagers 
gathered around, like all, all laughing at something, making, making fun of someone. And so he was kind of intrigued, like, what, what's going on here? Uh, I want to see. So he kind of makes his way through there. And what the teenagers are laughing at is this dad is holding his daughter uh, kind of up on his shoulders, and she's playing in the mist. She's playing in the water. And they're laughing because uh, this girl is incredibly deformed. She's, she's physically um, handicapped. And Nathan was just, like, shocked by kind of how wrong that was. He, he became, like, indignant and angry. And he was like, ah, what do I need to say to these, these people to kind of, like, bring justice? What do I need to say to these teenagers to, like, get them to stop being so mean? But then he said he realized that the girl didn't care. She was laughing. She was smiling. She was having the best time. She, she couldn't even hear and didn't even want to acknowledge the, the people making fun of her, the people persecuting her. Why? Because she was enjoying the love of her father. Look, a lot of us have lives that are categorized by so much fear. I'm with you. Uh, a lot of the fear just grips our soul. And so many of us are just so afraid of living out the, courage, the courageous life of inviting Jesus to really like expose the areas that he wants to expose. But do you see that the grace and the love of Jesus, the smile of the Father that he guarantees us before he ever exposes us, is what allows us to then have the the courage to face these fearful situations, to allow him to tear down these things that we're trying to find our security in. And it's actually at the moment that we find that he tears all these things down we were looking for security in, that it was only him and his smile that he's providing right now that we actually have true security in. Regardless of how deformed our hearts might be, regardless of whether others reject us and saw who we, and when they see who we really are, the Father will never. And that's the good news of the gospel. And the invitation is to trust the Father's smile, to see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, to trust in his grace. So let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, for this passage. Thank you for the witness of Stephen. And ultimately, thank you that you um, were what Stephen was treasured, that your smile, your advocacy at the right hand of God um, is what his hope was in. And that's really good news because uh, that hope is also available to us. And so give us the courage, uh, give us the love that we need that will cast out the fear to bring Jesus into all these various areas of our life that we're trying to find life in. Point us to the smile of the Father where life is truly found. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.